Hi everyone and welcome to this latest instalment of UK in a Changing Europe's Brexit and Beyond podcast and today I'm delighted once again to be joined by not one but two fantastic guests. First we have the ubiquitous Jill Rutter. Joining her today is Joelle Roland, our own researcher who, as we're about to hear, has been responsible for drafting our divergence tracker. Welcome both of you. Hi Anand. Hi Anand. So Joelle, starting with you, can you just do the basics and talk us through what is this divergence tracker and what is it meant to show? Divergence basically comes back to how the UK is changing its rules now that it's left the EU. As a member state, obviously, we copied all our laws that the EU was implementing and these were copied over into UK UK rules during the process of Brexit. But now we have the opportunity to diverge, if we so wish, to change rules which we've inherited from the EU or also not to follow new rules which the EU is pursuing and potentially go in a different direction over any policy area from financial services to agriculture. So the divergence tracker is basically there to look over what the UK is doing, where it is making new rules which the EU isn't pursuing, or likewise where the EU is doing stuff which the UK is not pursuing. And so this, yeah, really gets to the heart of what it means to be, you know, an independent country doing things differently, not having to, you know, deal as Brexiteers would would present it with those kind of overly burdensome rules coming from the EU about, you know, brandy bananas is the classic which Boris Johnson used to cite. How can the UK potentially do things a bit more suited to its own needs? But really the answer from the early work, the sort of first three trackers that we've produced is not much is happening yet. There are lots of ideas. The Queen's speech last week, again, made a big play of Brexit opportunities, things like procurement, data reform, but we haven't seen much in practice changing. So we're still in the realm of talk rather than delivery. And this, as you say, I mean, if you are to believe people like Lord Frost, this divergence isn't incidental. It is the whole point of Brexit. This is what it's all about. Let me just say in parentheses, if I sound like I'm smiling, it's because Rutter has just been showing the camera her brand new stamped passport because she's just been to France and she's very excited. But yeah, divergence is what this is all about, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, again, to go back to that point, it's arguably this is the foundational idea of Brexit to get away from those yeah excessive EU regulations, those troublesome Brussels bureaucrats. But the irony is, actually, the UK is, if anything, looking more European outside of the EU than it was before. We've got a new immigration system, which is going to see immigration remain probably in the hundreds of thousands for the rest of the decade. We've got the highest tax burden in 70 years, the highest government debt burden in 70 years, partly COVID-induced, of course, but this is where we are. So we haven't moved to what was, you know, heralded as Singapore on Thames, slashing regulation left, right and centre to, you know, turbocharge the economy and become this you know great gallivanting sort of new player on the world stage and part of that is because actually deregulation is really really hard jacob rees mogg used the metaphor of unpicking the barnacles from the british ship of state but it's really not that neat if you want to change regulations around say medical devices you need to consult with business you need to write round to government you need to think about where changes could take place that takes a long time simply to design the policy and then you have to manage the challenges which come with for example if you have a uk regime for medical devices and an eu one that means british business that wants to export to the eu has to comply with two sets of rules at once so you're actually creating more bureaucracy even if your new uk regime is better suited to the uk specific needs it won't necessarily help companies that want to export into both uk and eu markets they've got to deal with twice the rules so that's why deregulation is often a lot more complicated than it seems so i think anand what's really interesting is clearly 
this sort of deregulatory drive was a big motivator for some Brexit voters and for some of its sort of political proponents. And that, after all, was what drove Boris Johnson's opposition to Theresa May's deal. Remember, go back to her Chequers deal. That would have had the UK accepting, actually, that for some of the reasons Joel set out, you know, mainly business convenience as well as Northern Ireland, that we would share a common rule book. We prepared to subject ourselves to a common rule book with the EU to facilitate goods traffic and to allow businesses to export more easily. There was one strand of Brexit view which said that actually the big prize here is regulatory autonomy. And we've seen from Lord Frost saying the problem is the government's been too timid in seizing that. You might say, well, David Frost, that was your job. You walked out before you did anything concrete about that. But that's one strand. But that's not the sole strand of Brexit coalition. Because if you look at where the big regulatory or deregulatory opportunities might be, they're in areas like, do we really want to unpick standards of environmental protection? Big row going on today, just picking up on Twitter about some proposed reforms, the Habitats Directive, been a long-standing bete noir of ministers, it has to be said, of both political parties because they think it stymies development and is really annoying to get around. But, you know, is there a big constituency for reducing environmental standards? The 2019 Conservative Manifesto talked about the opportunity to go beyond EU environmental standards, not to reduce them. What's another area? It's taking down some of the worker rights protections that have come in through the EU. Is there a big constituency among, for example, Boris Johnson's Red Wall voters for reducing worker protections? Actually, much of the discussion now is how do we afford better protections for people who work in the gig economy or in zero hours contracts, all of those permitted, while we were EU members, that economy sort of arose while we were there. But, you know, is the debate about reducing maternity leave, things like that? Those are some of the things that impose costs on business and that you might say should be part of your big deregulatory drive. You really wanted to make UK business more competitive, but actually not clear at all there's that much political appetite for that. We had a very brief foray last year, I think early 2021, when the government said it was going to look at workers' rights. And I think that was that wasn't the quickest U-turn this government's done, but it certainly didn't last a week. We have a combination, if you like, then of practical trade-offs and political constraints that are helping to shape this. You've both just said so much that I have enough questions in my head to keep us going for about five podcasts. So let's work our way through them slowly. Firstly, Joelle, I don't know if I, I sort of misunderstood you, but were you intimating that our immigration system is now more European in your earlier comments? Because it absolutely isn't, is it? Is not more European, no. But what I mean is, was to say that kind of the UK state after Brexit has become more interventionist in a lot of ways. That's to do with Boris Johnson's levelling up regime, and that's actually quite reliant potentially on high levels of immigration. We're not we're not leaving the EU to pull up the drawbridge. And what's happened to the immigration system? And this is. You know, this is actually the clearest example of divergence we've had. These rules changed as soon as we left the EU properly, is free movement ended and you no longer have that free flow of European migration. But 
we have a new points-based immigration system, which essentially sets skills and salary criteria, which uh, workers have to meet to get a visa to come to the UK. But this is actually a highly liberal regime compared to the rest of the EU regarding non-EU migration. Roughly 50% of jobs in the UK, in theory, this is you know a bit back of the envelope, but would be eligible for a visa under the new system. So there's lots of opportunities for people to come to the UK. And we can already see that in what's happening. Skilled work visas are up significantly. Student visas are up significantly. And the patterns of migration are changing. We're seeing many more students from countries like China, Nigeria, India, fewer from the EU, naturally. And also that's having an impact on the type of migrant that we're getting. The biggest shortfalls have been in areas reliant on EU migration. So manufacturing, sort of catering, that kind of accommodation services to do with hotels, that kind of work, relying on EU labour, they've seen big shortages of labour. But in other areas, in more of what is, you know, quote unquote, skilled employment, there's potentially a lot of people coming in to the UK. So yeah, this is not sort of the end of migration as we know, it. it's just a different kind. But there is a very interestingly big difference. Even if you keep your level of inward migration the same, it's very different from a business point of view to have some of it met through free movement, quite a big tranche of it met through free movement, and the rest through a visa regime. Because the big difference with free movement was, one, from a business point of view, it was genuinely free. It was, you know, cost-free. You didn't have to fork out to be a sponsor. You know, there weren't costs associated. The UK has quite a liberal migration regime, but it also has a very expensive migration regime for individuals caught up in it. And if you look at a source of business bureaucracy, if you're a small business... You used to actually just have to ask someone to produce their EEA passport to say, are you okay to play here? Got a national insurance number. Sure, you're on the payroll. Quite a lot of small businesses, I think, now are finding that unless they're willing to get over the hurdle of registering and going through all that bureaucracy and possibly you know, have somebody who can fill out the forms, then actually there's a big barrier to them employing migrant labour now that didn't exist before. So that's an example where we've been able to take advantage of being able to have a different post-EU regime and one that may better fit Britain's needs and actually be politically much more acceptable than free movement. But actually, in terms of regulatory burden on business, is a much more burdensome regime than one where a lot of businesses had this option of using you know, EU labour as a potential safety valve. So going back to regulation itself, I mean, you've both painted a picture, if you like, of constraint, that there are trade-offs involved in changing our regulation, there are political pressures that militate against it. Are there, is there evidence to date that this has been worth it in regulatory terms? I mean, is there stuff we are gaining from this as yet that we can identify? Well, I think one of the really interesting early test cases, one of the things almost absolutely everybody agreed, uh, whether you count this as regulation or not, I'm not sure, was that surely outside the EU, we could do better on the way we manage agriculture, on the agricultural subsidy regime. The cap was almost universally hated, whether you hated it as a farmer because you thought it was appallingly bureaucratic and you were marred in red tape, or whether you hated it as an environmentalist because you would say that the cap had ushered in decades of environmental degradation. So could you do better? And Michael Gove, in his early outing when he started his political rehabilitation under Theresa May, spoke of the unfrozen moment when you could start doing things really, really differently. 
And this is quite interesting because it is a very early test case of can the UK going it alone, devising its own regime, do something? You would say, actually, it's an England regime. Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland are all doing things a bit differently because agriculture is fully devolved as part of the sort of post-1997 settlement uh, that used to be constrained by being within the EU, now less constrained. But actually, one of the things that DEFRA's finding is it's a big bureaucratic task to do this. They are trying to do a lot of worthy things around co-design of the new scheme, but lots and lots of concerns from people, um, particularly trying to introduce really big change to the way farmers are paid, not for holding land, but payments for public goods. That's the mantra of the new regime at a time with food prices going up, good for farmers, but input prices also going through the roof very bad for farmers in a time when the farm sector is being very badly hit by the labour shortages Joel was mentioned. So I think one of the things that you're discovering is even where there does appear to be an almost unanimously agreed on opportunity, do people agree on the shape of that opportunity? Do farmers and environmentalists actually agree what that is? Maybe slightly further than you might think. And actually, how difficult is it actually to get from here to there? There are other areas, though, I think Joel might want to have a word about, you know, financial services, where the UK filed all its papers to get an equivalence decision out of the EU. That decision was due in June 2020. The UK, slightly later that year, gave the EU equivalence across a quite a big range of financial services. The EU's always said, you know, even though you're totally applying the EU financial services regime, which we were obviously doing at the point of Brexit, we slightly suspicious of your future intentions or open brackets, we see a big opportunity to snatch a big share of your financial services businesses, guys, close brackets, and they've never been forthcoming with anything other than the most sort of, you meh financial services equivalence decision. And now the Treasury does seem to have actually given up on that and decided to strike out on its own. But I'm going to hand over to Joel for a bit more on what the Treasury's actually got its uh, sights on in terms of regulatory divergence there, because this is one of the places where we do see a bit of a positive agenda emerging. Just before you start on the Treasury, Joel, just just to sort of recap on, on what Jill was saying, I mean, it points to several important things, I think, that in terms of judging the effectiveness of regulatory autonomy, we need to bear in mind that effectiveness isn't necessarily economic. It can be other things like environmental. And that whatever you choose to do, there are going to be very difficult distributional implications between different groups. And it's going to take an awfully long time, I think, to figure out what the net impact across the board has been. But as Jill was intimating there, the Treasury does seem to be one department that has a vision of post-Brexit divergence and how it can be used for the benefit of the economy. And financial services is an obvious area. So, Joel, what are your thoughts on what we've done so far and what our ambitions might be? The Treasury stands out. and I think there's a very good reason for that is because it is, you know, one area where, as the government is fond of saying, the UK is actually world leading. This is all, you know, the kind of phrase that's smattered across any Brexit related document is making the UK a leader. And in financial services, the UK retains a lot of that. It retains a lot of the infrastructure, the muscle memory, the international allure. And while, you know, Amsterdam in the EU is maybe kind of the primary competitor, there are good reasons why the UK will think that even if it doesn't have equivalence with the EU to really, you know, facilitate financial services as smoothly as possible with as few barriers as possible with the EU in a lot of areas, it can 
compete with them as a market for attracting global investment. Solvency 2 is really the flagship policy which everyone points to. It's to do with insurance. And to be honest with you, I'd get lost in the weeds if I tried to explain all the details. But effectively, it's it's considered to be overly burdensome, overly bureaucratic, the amount of form filling you have to do. And the UK thinks it can do that better. And there are kind of a number of other similar kind of ideas behind the financial services bill which was in the queen's speech and is you know, making its way through now parliamentary procedure so that that's kind of stands out as an area but the, the wider problem for the uk as you both kind of alluded to is that any benefits will really take a long time this gets back to the point that divergence is an awfully awfully dry and technical topic a lot of the time and if you want to see benefits in agriculture it's going to be probably yeah 2027 until the scheme is fully implemented you're going to be looking even longer before you're seeing how that's fundamentally changing the uk the way it produces food its wider kind of environmental footprint so it's very hard to sell these gains short term you'll occasionally hear the government pointing to reintroducing crown stamps on pint glasses reintroducing pounds and ounces so we can weigh food differently it's because these you know, it's, it's red meat. It's the kind of stuff you can throw to the mass as a symbolic shift away from the EU. But that really substantive stuff, which is about changing the way UK does stuff, that takes a lot, lot longer. And with an election on the horizon, it's kind of my concern in policy terms would be that really serious thinking, whether it be to do with data reform, procurement, state aid, any of that stuff is slightly parked because they're looking for those short-term symbolic gains, which you can stick to an electorate and stick on electoral flyers. Though I have to suggest that sort of in terms of politics and elections, short-term symbolic gains might be every bit as effective as a more well-thought-through, longer-term strategy, wouldn't you say? Well, absolutely. I'm, this is what I'm saying, is there's that tendency to go for the, the things which are simple, which sound like they're, you know, moving away because they're they're symbolic. They are, you know, they have some kind of historic cultural association to the UK, like pounds and ounces, that kind of stuff. But the, the stuff which takes time is is the stuff which, yeah, I don't think has much political dividend. Now, I mean, the other thing you, you've touched upon in your work as a potential area where divergence can bear real fruit is new areas of economic activity. This is where I do my list of things that I don't understand, but I sound as if I do. So fintech, AI, robotics, driverless cars, all those sort of technologies of the future where there isn't a massive body of regulation already. Can you talk us through what the thinking is about the opportunities there might be there for post-Brexit UK? Yeah, absolutely. And really, the, the central point here is there is less EU regulation to move away from. So that potentially makes the transition for business easier. And it gives the UK a greater opportunity to get ahead of the EU and kind of have that, you know, the first mover advantage, if you like. Going back to, I gave the example of medical devices earlier, or another another good example would be the UKCA regime for manufacturing goods. The UK is simply copying regulation that the EU has that's multiplying the processes that businesses have to go through if they want to manage their work in the UK and EU markets. But for example, something like fintech, financial technology, that's an area where there's much less EU regulation. And so if the UK is kind of first out the blocks in terms of putting out an architecture for businesses to work around or even creating they call them sandboxes which is where you have kind of looser regulations on uh, small startup companies so they can experiment a bit more you know the idea is to uh, drive entrepreneurship growth in the industry the uk really has an opportunity to become a hub for that kind of investment if it can get its fintech regulation in order earlier and coming back to the point earlier about the treasury you know being quite on the ball with this stuff i think partially also because it's you know a very weighty Whitehall Department, which is able to commit time and resource to this thinking as well, there are potential advantages 
advantages for the UK there. AI would be another example, although the EU is also doing some thinking about AI. And that's a challenge because when the EU lays down regulation first, it likes to fall back on what academics would call the Brussels effect, which is the fact that the EU market is so big, there's so much international desire to invest in there that if the EU lays down rules first, people will follow because they want access to that market. They want to make sure that their AI products can get sold into the EU. But potentially the UK, because it's not 27 member states, can get that regulation done faster because it doesn't have to go through the same amount of policy making process. And so if it gets its AI rules out first, perhaps it gets that advantage. People will adapt themselves to the UK rules before EU ones. I think one of the interesting questions there is whether there are some areas where the UK can create something of a London effect by getting in and actually, if you like, sort of proving the concept and then getting the EU to follow what London has done in some of those areas. You think actually one of the areas where, because the UK is a big financial services market, we're already talking to Switzerland about potential for regulatory cooperation. You know, we may be able to talk to other countries' regulators as well. And we're quite weighty in things like the Bank for International Settlements, which sets the sort of rules for quite a lot of these things, which are then translated into law. That that's an area where we might be able to set sort of rules first. I mean, when I lived in the States, there was a lot of talk about what was called the California effect, where California would go ahead of the rest of the US and then that rest of the US would gradually come up to California's standards on things like air quality and stuff like that. So you might see us in some areas being able to do that because are some of these advantages. There are downsides, though, of, uh, you know, Joel has pointed out the upside of being one rather than having to go at the speed of 27. The downside of being one rather than 27 is if companies can't be bothered to test in your market. We've seen some of that on medicines, a question, can we do sort of, you know, niche prescribing, various things in the UK market, or is the UK market just too small for people to bother to jump through the separate regulatory hoops here and will they just sort of make medicines say available where they can get an EMA authorization for 27 countries rather than MHRA authorization, Medicines Health Care Regulatory Agency authorization just for the UK. So I mean, there's two questions that, that come to mind from this. I mean, the first is because I'm a sort of risk averse old fart is, is this a kind of high risk, high reward approach to regulation that we're talking about? I mean, when you were talking about sandboxes and I was immediately struck by this idea of small firms experimenting with driverless cars, which terrifies me. Is that the thing that we can afford to be less risk averse as a, as a way of getting that investment that the EU will forsake by being driven by the precautionary principle? And the UK's always had an issue that it thinks, and this is, of course, one of the big differences between the EU and the US approach over some of its animal you know, welfare regulations, stuff like that, that there's always been a sense that the EU has taken the precautionary principle too far and managed to convert it into an anti-innovation principle so that you have far too high a sort of burden of proof on something before you're prepared to go and do it. And you could see, and the UK's just actually last week, finally, finally, finally responded to its own consultation been running for over a year about how it's going to apply its new five environmental principles, one of which is the precautionary principle. And it's quite keen to make clear that this isn't sort of, you know, anti-science, anti-innovation. So I think it's really, really interesting where you do that. The problem is, of course, for the government that if it does decide it's got a higher risk appetite than the EU has, the moment you have the consequence flowing through 
of that higher risk appetite, it gets blamed on the UK having a non-precautionary, risk-loving regime, and you end up with a sort of bit of a backlash and having to do that. And there are various areas where you could say the UK is already exposing its overlax approach. A couple of decades ago, we had the uh, turning down temperatures in furnaces, which some people, you know, think, I can't remember all the details, led to BSE taking place in the UK, led to, you know, consequences of the beef ban and things like that. And only now are some markets starting to accept UK meat products. Uh, It's one of the things that we keep on doing is saying X will now accept beef from the UK, some of the consequences of BSE. If you read some of the evidence in the Grenfell inquiry, some of that came about. You've had officials say, well, we didn't think we could raise building standards or raise these concerns from ministers because ministers were pursuing a deregulatory agenda. The rule at the time was one in, two out, one in, three out or whatever. So we didn't think ministers would ever be interested in, you know, if we said we think we need to do this stuff for building safety, that might be defensiveness and a bit of buck passing by officials. But I mean, I think it's quite interesting because people are very pro-deregulation in theory. And then they forget, why did you regulate in the first place? You regulated in the first place because you thought the benefits were greater than the costs. And those benefits are in terms of protecting against, you know, bad things getting into the food chain, buildings burning down and things like that. And that's why you've actually, you know, bothered to regulate. So getting regulation right is very difficult, nuanced task because you're trying to balance those benefits against the costs that you are undoubtedly imposing on businesses. I suppose the second part, Joel, if I can come to you on this, about this dilemma of having a a relatively light touch regulatory approach in these new sectors is ultimately doesn't success depend not just in our ability to get investment in, but and tied to this, ultimately our ability to sell the goods that we make in, in these new areas to the European Union. So won't success ultimately depend on them adopting the same standard as us anyway? I think you're absolutely right that the trade is and trade with the EU is the single biggest potential downside trade off to having lighter touch regulation. There are several examples you could point to that the UK already has plans in the works for. There's plans around data protection, GDPR, where the UK wants to simplify data protection rules inherited from the EU, which is seen to make life too complicated for small businesses. But there's a big risk that the UK loses its EU trade data adequacy agreement, which would mean that there would no longer be a free flow of data between the UK and the EU with big, big costs for businesses, some estimates that for major companies, it could come into the millions of pounds every year. And there are similar problems potentially around chemicals regulation. The EU is planning what is an absolutely enormous suite of new regulations of maybe 12,000 chemicals, which could be banned under new EU plans. The UK doesn't seem to have the appetite to become quite so directive in terms of its own chemical regulation approach. But, you know, there's a big risk that lots of products manufactured in the UK would become impermissible on the EU market. And so this really comes back to that fundamental trade-off. You can be a lighter touch regulator if you like, but the EU is still your biggest market on the doorstep. And so to an extent, you you will need to remain, you know, aligned to their principles. Perhaps the more glass half full approach way of looking at this is a bit of what Jacob Rees-Mogg has been talking about with customs checks, goods coming in from the, the EU, where we say at the moment, we're simply, you know, not going to introduce the level of checks which the EU has going in the other direction. And this is driving vet associations up the wall because they think there's a risk you know that you know the next great animal disease is just a few weeks away because we're not doing the due process but the other way of looking at that is you're the UK is saying 
that we're not having to we're not disaligning from EU rules. We're just doing things in a slightly lighter touch way. And we will if a good is good enough for the EU or Singapore or Australia, it's going to be good enough for us. And that long term might be a different way of approaching regulation and saying the UK will effectively free ride on the decisions of others. And maybe that's the, the way to marry. What that, of course, does do is mean there's huge asymmetries because it means we're basically giving lots of other countries free passes into the UK market. But the EU isn't sitting there and saying, sure, I mean, the UK at various points has said we're going to be a high standards regulator. Let's just have mutual recognition. The EU didn't even concede. It certainly didn't concede mutual recognition. We'll just accept that whatever the UK chooses to do, you're a high standards regulator outside the jurisdiction of the ECJ, not matching EU standards. We're not accepting mutual recognition of outcomes. They didn't even concede to us what you might have thought was a bit of a no-brainer, but was mutual recognition of what's called conformity assessment, whereby they accept that UK regulators can authorise to EU standards that things meet that. And I think this is one of the things where the government might be in for a bit of a shock about, if you like, nominal sovereignty versus effective sovereignty for some of these big companies, at least. We can choose to have different rules in the UK, but actually we will find a lot of our companies want one production line and therefore will choose to follow whatever is the highest standard regulator. So they will actually choose willingly to accept the burden of meeting EU standards in order to be able to export to the EU. And that's what they'll end up providing to the UK market. So the UK consumer won't in that sense benefit. They might benefit from more choice where there's a producer who's not interested in the EU market or exports to one of the other regulatory hegemons, either the US or China. Probably don't send very much to China of that sort of thing. But I mean, they might very well find that actually they're not really setting the regulatory regime for a lot of companies in the UK. Just a final question. There's there's an awful lot here to talk through. And this is a slightly unfair question for both of you, I suppose. But I mean, to date, this debate about Brexit and Brexit regulatory freedoms has been slightly abstract and has been couched in political as much as economic terms. That's to say, this is the freedom to do stuff, you know, to become a self-governing country. Do you detect signs in the current economic climate of the cost of living crisis that the debate is changing a little bit, that people are slightly more interested in the sort of economic pluses and minuses of regulatory independence than perhaps they were a year ago when we first started talking about these things? The big area where we can feel the effects of divergence is on Northern Ireland. I mean, is is explicitly referred to in what we expect the UK government to come out with tomorrow. I guess, spoiler alert, we're recording on Monday. We don't know what they've actually planning in terms of proposed changes to the protocol, but there have been explicit references to the problem with Northern Ireland not being able to follow new UK rules on VAT to do with um, solar panels and energy saving products, which means that, you know, symbolically, it means Northern Ireland is slightly cut off from the rest of the UK. It can't follow those rules. And also it can affect trade as well, because if you have uh, different duties that need to be paid on a product, this also applies to alcohol tariffs that have changed between Great Britain and Northern Ireland. That's potentially introducing new checks, new customs paperwork. And so it increases the bureaucracy, the process around trade within the UK internal market. And so that's where we are really, really feeling the effect. And the government is making quite a big point about that and who knows how that's going to be reconciled whether there can be a greater degree to which northern ireland can follow areas where the uk is diverging from the eu i mean i think the government would love to be able to argue that they have identified huge numbers of brexit opportunities that are going to make a massive difference 
to the cost of living. But actually, the sort of search for non-fiscal interventions, maybe non-rishi interventions to solve the cost of living crisis has not got very far so far. And I think the real risk for the government is that there does seem to be an emerging consensus in the public that Brexit, if anything, has made the cost of living crisis worse, which may just be cut through from the studies that we published a couple of weeks ago unarmed, but might actually be people's sort of personal experiences that prices are going up and that they're beginning to work out that whatever the benefits of Brexit were, the economy is not doing better because of it. And the government will be very hard pressed to find ways, in the short run at least, to genuinely find ways in which we can use Brexit to deal with the immediate cost pressures or the pressures of a rather stagnating economy. I have to say, I didn't detect any obvious signs of cut through with Jacob Rees-Mogg on the Today programme for our research the other day. But anyway, Jill, Joelle, that was utterly fascinating. We're going to have to do this again because there's so much more we ought to dig into around this question of divergence. But for the moment, thank you very, very much indeed. Thanks, Anand. Thanks, Anand.